It's good to hear from uh, Les and Rita, those of you that don't know them personally. I tell you what, Les is, uh, is quite the guy. He's, he's the real deal. And uh, we've been praying for Rita. We're also praying for those struggling with cancer who haven't had those miraculous results yet. We're praying that God will guide and comfort you through that. Uh, it's, it's good to have good news in Lent. It's good to sing about putting on a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Because Lent can be a very challenging journey when we're looking at... Uh, our own lives and kind of going through some practices that can sometimes unsettle us. And I was laughing to myself this week thinking, well, at least we get to look at very uplifting scriptures through Lent. Uh, not. The, the text that I'm reading today is continuing this journey of, of Israel just prior to the exile. We're actually going to look today at Jeremiah kind of 38 to 43, 44, the fall of Jerusalem. We, we started in Lamentations and talked about the need to be honest with God and to trust Him. And then we, we read that letter to the exiles. The first two waves had gone, and Jeremiah said, you know, settle in. You're going to be there a while. Trust that God's got the big picture in hand. Last week, we saw those weird Rechabites who refused to drink wine in the temple. And, and just as a reminder to listen and obey God, to trust in this situation, that this obedience is for our own good. And this week, like I say, we're coming to the fall of the city of Jerusalem. Now, it's, it's the story of the end and a new beginning. And you'll notice at the end of that, I put a question mark. Because the end is definitely here. The end of Jerusalem, the end of Israel as they've known it is here. The question is, will the people allow it to be a new beginning? And so it's a large section of text that we're going to work through. We're going to start in chapter 38. And, and I'm going to read the section kind of as we tell the story for a couple reasons. Number one, it's too much to ask any one person to read. And I feel like I should do my, uh, my duty trying to read some of these names. I, I laughed every time I went through the text this week. I'm sure at some point during my reading of the text, I've said them properly. I'm not guaranteeing that that will happen today. But uh, there's some, some crazy names in there. I would encourage you, grab your Bible. We're going to read really the first two main points of the sermon, we're telling the story, and we're going to read the, the text interspersed with that, and then we'll wrap up by looking at how do we learn to live when our world is falling apart uh, based on this. So it starts back in Jeremiah chapter 38. Zedekiah is this puppet king. He's been put in place by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He's been on the throne for 11 years. Uh, lots of Jews are already in exile in Babylon. Those first two waves have gone but what we see in chapter 38 is the prophet Jeremiah telling the king to surrender. Now the people, you've got to get this, the people want to kill Jeremiah. He's not got good news. And, and they actually came to King Zedekiah and they said, we, we want to get rid of this guy. And Zedekiah, being such a strong and powerful king, says, you guys do whatever you want. Go right ahead. So they take Jeremiah, they throw him into a cistern and he's trapped there. Uh, another guy, a friend of his, comes and says to the king, he's trapped. And so they rescue him. And we pick up the story with Jeremiah uh, being called to see King Zedekiah. It's chapter 38, verse 14. I'll read to 23. Then King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and had him brought to the third entrance to the temple of the Lord. I'm going to ask you something, the king said to Jeremiah. Do not hide anything from me. And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I give you an answer, will you not kill me? Even if I did give you counsel, you would not listen to me. 
But King Zedekiah swore this oath secretly to Jeremiah, As surely as the Lord lives who has given us breath, I will neither kill you nor hand you over to those who want to kill you. And then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, This is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says, If you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared and this city will not be burned down. You and your family will live. But if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians and they will burn it down. You yourself will not escape from them. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Jews who've gone over to the Babylonians, for the Babylonians may hand me over to them and they will mistreat me. They will not hand you over, Jeremiah replied. Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you and it will go well with you and your life will be spared. But if you refuse to surrender... This is what the Lord has revealed to me. All the women left in the palace of the king of Judah will be brought out to the officials of the king of Babylon. And these women will say to you, they misled you and overcame you, those trusted friends of yours. Your feet are sunk in the mud. Your friends have deserted you. All your wives and children will be brought out to the Babylonians. You yourself will not escape from their hands, but will be captured by the king of Babylon. And this city will be burned down. So... What kind of advice is this? <coughs> Jeremiah says, surrender. And they're standing, they're literally standing in part of the temple. And Jeremiah says, just surrender. But this is, this is God's city, right? This is, this is the holy place. This is the, the, the last remnant of the people of Israel to say that God is with his people. So what kind of message is surrender? And, and what happens after this is that the city falls, yet Jeremiah stands. If you look over in chapter 39, first eight verses of chapter 39, this is how Jerusalem was taken. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. Nergal Sharezer of Samgar, Nebo Sarsakim, a chief, a chief officer, Nergal Sharezer, a high official, and all the other officials of the king of Babylon. And when Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls and headed toward the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. And there at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed all the nobles of Judah. And then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. And the Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. So the king doesn't surrender. He flees and the city falls along with their king. If you keep reading down in 39, starting with verse 11, you see what, what happens. Now Nebuchadnezzar, Canezer, the king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the commander of the imperial guard. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asked. So Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, 
<laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, a chief officer, Nergal, Sherezer, a high official, and all the other officers of the king of Babylon sent and had Jeremiah taken out of the courtyard of the guard. And they turned him over to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, son of Shephon, to take him back to his home. So he remained among his own people. So, so Jeremiah is safe. They explain it a little bit more in detail down in chapter 40. Verses 1 to 6, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had released him at Ramah. You, you, you begin to see how it actually played out here. He had found Jeremiah bound in chains among all the captives from Jerusalem and Judah who were being carried into exile in Babylon. And when the commander of the guard found Jeremiah, he said to him, The Lord, this is the Babylon, Babylonian commander of the guard, the Lord your God decreed this disaster for this place. And now the Lord has brought it about. He has done just as he said he would. All this happened because you people sinned against the Lord and did not obey him. But today I am freeing you from the chains on your wrists. Come with me to Babylon if you like and I will look after you. But if you do not want to, then don't come. Look, the whole country lies before you. Go wherever you please. However, before Jeremiah turned to go, Nebuzaradan added, Go back to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the towns of Judah, and live with him among the people. Or... Go anywhere else you please. The kingdom has fallen. Uh, Zedekiah is, has his eyes gouged out. His family's dead. He's being taken into captivity. But Jeremiah is free to go. And it looks like the drama's over now. The, the, the worst has happened. The city's destroyed. Uh, there's a new kind of puppet ruler in place. His name is Gedaliah. And you think things are just going to go on as norm, normal. But th that's not true. Because what continues as the story goes on is there's a plot to kill this puppet leader. All those left behind with Gedaliah, this new kind of governor that's ruling over those who have been left behind, gather together with him in chapter 40, verse 9 and 10. Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, took an oath to reassure them and their men. All these people left. He says, do not be afraid to serve the Babylonians, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. I myself will stay at Mizpah to represent you before the Babylonians who come to us but you are to harvest the wine, summer fruit, and olive oil and put them in your storage jars and live in the towns that you've taken over. So now maybe things are going to settle down, right? Now everything's kind of, there's a new kind of puppet ruler under the, the leadership of Babylon. But then these rumors start to fly. Something's going on. Things are not going well. And you look at 40, verse 13 to 16. Johanan son of Korea, and all the army officers still in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Don't you know that Balas, king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, did not believe them. Then Johanan, son of Korea, said privately to Gedaliah in Mizpah, Let me go and kill Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he take your life and cause all the Jews who are gathered around you to be scattered and the remnant of Judah to perish. But Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, said to Johanan, son of Korea, don't do such a thing. What you are saying about Ishmael is not true. So you've got the puppet king here, and there's a rumor that the Ammonites are going to come in and kill him. And he says, no, no, it's just a rumor. Well, that was a bad decision, because if you read through chapter 41, exactly this guy, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, comes and kills him. And it's an overthrow by the Ammonites. What's, what's really happening here is the Babylonians have come in and destroyed everything. And then this other group of people say, we're going to go through and we're going to be scavengers. We're going to kind of pick among the spoils 
So they kill the ruler the Babylonians have put in place. And once again, there's this, this chaos. Even, even though everything's been taken and only the poor are left, now the poor have been defeated again and, and the, the land has been pillaged. And what we see as the story wraps up are the fears of the few left behind. And they gather together. These people that are left after Gadaliah, the under-governor, has been killed. They come to Jeremiah in chapter 42, in the first six verses there. Then all the army officers, including Johanan, son of Korea, and Jezaniah, son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest, approached Jeremiah the prophet and said to him, Please hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. Seems like it's gotten to the point where they're listening now. I have heard you, replied Jeremiah the prophet. I will certainly pray to the Lord your God as you have requested. I will tell you everything the Lord says and keep nothing back from you. And then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us. Whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it will go well with us, for we will obey the Lord our God. They come to him, they say, What do we do? We've had this double whammy. The Babylonians have wiped us out. The Ammonites have wiped us out. Now, just tell us, Jeremiah, tell us, go to God for us. And they even say, your God, the Lord, your God. Tell him, I find out what we need to do and we will do it. We, it doesn't matter what it is. And then we hear the word of the Lord to those left. They've come to seek the advice and they're going to do whatever. But the reality in this last part of the text becomes clear. They, like most human beings, want to do what they want to do. And they will find a way to do it. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's just read Jeremiah prays and waits in verse 7. Chapter 42, verse 7. He's praying and it says, Ten days later, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. They've come to him. What do we do? And they wait for ten days for him to hear back. Ten days of fear. Ten days of wondering. And we all know waiting is never fun. But just imagine they have nothing. They're waiting to find out what to do. Everything they've had has been stripped away. Not just their possessions, but their culture and the the ethos of their nation. Everything has been taken from them. And then the word of the Lord comes, verse 42, 8 to 12. So he called together Johanan, son of Korea, and all the army officers who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest. And he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition, says, If you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you, for I have relented concerning the disaster I have inflicted upon you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. See, the call from God is the call to stay and to trust. It almost echoes that letter we read to the exiles, stay right where you are, but it's not them doing the rebuilding and the planting. God says, I will rebuild you, and I will replant you. I'll I'll take care of you. 
You do not need to be afraid. This is such a constant theme throughout the scriptures. Stay. I've got you. Do not fear. But for some reason, there's always a temptation to run and to self-protect. And that's what we see here. Last little section I'll read, chapter 42, 13 to 17. This is the last part of God's message. However, God says, if you say we will not stay in this land and so disobey the Lord your God, and if you say, no, we will go and live in Egypt where we will not see war or hear the trumpet or be, or hungry, for, or be hungry for bread, then hear the word of the Lord, you remnant of Judah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. If you are determined to go to Egypt and you do go to settle there, then the sword you fear will overtake you there and the famine you dread will follow you into Egypt and there you will die. Indeed, all who are determined to go to Egypt to settle there will die by the sword, famine, and plague. Not one of them will survive or escape the disaster I will bring on them. You see, God knows them. He knows that their fears will tempt them to seek safety on their own terms. And, and sure enough, they're thinking, let's go to Egypt. Let's leave all this behind. We won't, we're tired of the war. We're tired of hearing the trumpets of these attacking armies coming against us. We're tired of being hungry. See, this is the line where that first sermon point comes back around. God's giving them a new beginning. He's saying, stay right here and I'll replant you. I'll rebuild you. You don't have to be afraid. I'll have compassion on you. And yet, even in this, there's a refusal to surrender to God. A refusal to surrender. I told you I've read the last thing I was going to read, but I'm going to read one more thing. Chapter 43 1 to 3. When Jeremiah had finished telling the people all the words of the Lord their God, everything the Lord had sent him to tell them, Azariah, son of Hoshiah, and Jehonan, son of Kareah, said to the, and, the, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, You are lying. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, You must not go to Egypt to settle there. But Baruch, son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians so that they may kill us or carry us into exile in Babylon. They say, Jeremiah, you're lying. I know we said we would do whatever God said to do, but you're lying. There's a conspiracy going on here. And Baruch, this guy who you'll probably hear about next week from Jake, Baruch is, is plotting against us and he's told you, he's conspiring with you and he wants us to stay here because he's just going to hand us over to the Babylonians. It's a conspiracy. We don't believe it. And so they run away. Instead of staying in the land, they run to Egypt. And as you read through 44, you'll hear the suffering that follows them there, just like God said. Now, it's a huge story. It's taken a long time to tell it. it starts with Zedekiah. You should just surrender. But he refuses, and he's captured, and the city falls. They put a leader in place, but the Ammonites come and take him out. And the few that are left behind and afraid cry out to God, but instead of listening and trusting, they run to Egypt in this last-ditch attempt to take care of themselves. It's a story from 2,500 years ago, but it's not so different than the story today. And I would say this crazy, drawn-out story about the fall of Jerusalem and all that played out after it offers us some lessons for living in a broken world. See, these events speak to us today because the world we live in is broken. And there are some red flags in this story that I think we should take note of 
when we read how they reacted to the situation. Because the lessons are the same for us, because we're human, we're broken just like they are. We live in this world that really is falling apart. And, and through this last kind of section of the sermon, I'm going to have the guys throw a ton of scripture up on the screen. I'm doing that because I want you to see, I felt like we haven't read much scripture today, so I'm just kidding. <laughs> we read a lot, but I want you to see these themes that are there in what happens in the last stages of the city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel there. These themes are all throughout scripture and they still speak to us today. The first thing, the red flag that we have to come to terms with, come face to face with, is the reality of self-deception. Right? Remember they said, hey, whatever God tells us, whether it's favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God. That's what we're going to do. Whatever he says, Jeremiah, that's what we'll do. And I think they actually believed it. They, they thought, yes, we just want to know. But then when, when the word comes, they call him a liar. They don't believe. It's an age-old issue for humans, this ability to, well, they call it today confirmation bias. This idea that when we look at a situation, we look at it trying to find information to support things we already think or believe. We interpret the situation based on what we want to believe, what, what it we, want, we want reality to confirm what we think is true. And a really simple explanation, and you may find yourself in this. Say you send a text message or an email or leave a voicemail for someone, and they don't answer you within the next day or two. Depending on what you think about yourself and the situation and your relationship with them, you will draw conclusions. And if you're a person that's, that's struggling with some insecurity or you feel like the relationship is, is not very stable, it's not somebody that can be trusted, you'll most likely think they're just ignoring me. They don't care about me. Now, the reality may be that they're extremely busy. Maybe they're, they're fasting from technology and they haven't checked in. You don't know reality, but you interpret it. Now, if, if you're more confident, if it's somebody you really trust, you think, oh, they're just busy, right? What you're doing is confirming what you already think and interpreting the situation in light of that. Like I say, it's called confirmation bias. There's a, a video about a minute and a half that just talks a little bit about this. I'll show you. American songwriter Paul Simons once said, a man sees what he wants to see and disregards the rest. But that doesn't apply to you, right? Well, maybe that's just because you don't want it to. Like it or not, we as human beings tend to think that our initial opinions are correct, and when presented with the facts, we pick out the ones that suit our presumptions best. This is called confirmation bias, or the tendency to favor information that confirms one's own assumptions or preconceptions, whether they're true or not. Experts describe this behavior with a simple analogy. A Texas sharpshooter decides to go out and practice his shooting on a barn. He unloads dozens of bullets randomly and spots a few clusters of bullet holes. He then paints a bullseye over the clusters, making him seem like a really good shot. Sounds weird? It's called the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, and your brain does it all the time. Why does this matter? Take a trip back to 1960 during the Kennedy-Nixon presidential debates. People who watched the debate on television saw a disheveled Nixon contrasted with the handsome and confident Kennedy. By looking at the person, they began focusing on points where Kennedy won because they wanted him to win. Contrast this with the listeners who, for the most part, declared Nixon the winner. The next time you jump to a conclusion, ask yourself, is it true or do I just want it to be?
The answer may come as a surprise. See, we, we always have to guard ourselves against the reality of self-deception because we tend to read into a situation what we want to be true. That's one of the reasons God doesn't call us to follow Him as individuals. He puts us in a group of other people that are likely to disagree with you and make you think. It's not always the most comfortable way to travel, but it is the best way to travel. And there's a ton of examples. It's a part of our human nature because we want to believe that we're right. And we're often willing to believe a lie we want to believe rather than believe the truth that we don't want to believe. And that's exactly what's happening in this situation. They don't want to stay where they are. They want to go to Egypt. And so even when God says, I'll plant you, I'll rebuild you, I'll nurture you, they don't want to believe that. So what they see is it's a lie, it's a conspiracy. Proverbs 16, 25. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. We, we can think this is the right thing to do, and, and we want it to be the right thing to do, but it's not the right thing to do. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We, you would think we could trust our own heart, but that's what Jeremiah says. No, that, that, we deceive ourselves all the time. In, in the book of Obadiah, he's speaking to the nation of Edom, and he's saying to them, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? See, he's saying, you guys think you're, you're taken care of. You want to believe that you're strong, but the pride of your own heart has deceived you. Even last week, we talked about from the book of James. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We have to worry about the fact that we don't always interpret things properly. We deceive ourselves all the time. So we need to approach things humbly. And not only do we deceive ourselves, but that we tend to draw people to us. Or Facebook and, uh, and, our, and, and the algorithms of our social media draw people to us that tell us exactly what we want to hear. 2 Timothy 4.3, For a time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We trust our own judgment far too much. And when God says, stay, wait, trust, we often choose to do what we want to do anyway. And we can even justify it. We can spiritualize it especially when we're confronted with the temptations of, quote, Egypt, right? The, the, the temptations they, they, we, they saw in Egypt, they won't see war, they won't hear the trumpet, they won't be attacked, and they won't be hungry for bread. And very often in our situation, we want a better way out. We want comfort. We don't want to suffer. We don't want life to be difficult. And sometimes we marry that idea. We, we spiritualize it and think, you know what, something, I must be doing something wrong spiritually because my life is hard right now. This doesn't look like God's blessing to me. Or we take it when things are going well that we actually are just being blessed by God. We want these comforts. We want these freedoms. We want these good things to happen. So we, we draw a little equal sign between our experience and God's blessing. Let me ask you this. How many of you would say the disciples, let's kick Judas out of that group, but let's say the other 11. How many of you would say they were blessed by God? I think we'd all have to say that God blessed them, used them, 
But look at the stories of their lives. How much peace, comfort, security did they have? Right? We cannot, uh, we can't do that. We can't define that blessing looks like comfort and peace and security. We, we get messed up when we, we start e- equating the things we want with the blessing of God. Jesus tells a story in Luke 4 about a foolish uh, guy who owns these crops and he does well and says, then, then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll t- tear down my barns and build bigger ones and I'll store all my grain and my goods and I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Yes, God has truly, truly blessed me. And in the next verse, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? You see, a season like Lent and the practices we go through, the scriptures we focus on, or, or a pandemic where we feel limited and, and, and enslaved, and the difficulties and suffering that we have in life, all these things strip things away from us, and we feel that loss, and because we feel loss, Something must be wrong. We're missing out. God's forgotten us. We're afraid. And you know what we do? We try to fix it. We try to make it all good again. But what if the loss that we feel during Lent, what if the the loss we feel from a pandemic, what if the loss we feel from suffering and difficulty and struggle is just God's way of taking away the idol of control. See, the going to Egypt was way more about them surrendering to the idol of control instead of surrendering to God. They've worshipped this idol from the beginning. All the way back in the, the beginning of the Bible and Scripture, there's this idol of control since taking the fruit so that they could be like God. That's the very same thing, and the story plays out over and over and over again. We and we do the, same, the exact same way. We want faith. We want a belief in God. We want a relationship with Jesus. We want our spirituality, but we want it our way. We want it to look like we want it to look. We want to follow Jesus, but we want that to look a certain way. And into that, Jesus comes to our idol of control. And in Luke 9, he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life, control his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. That, the difficulty we interpret as a problem, as, it's because that's the, way we, that's the way we want it to be. We don't want this to be normal. We don't want this to be a part of the spiritual journey. So we, we, we self-deceive and we, we hold on to these things and we, we look for something better and we run away to, quote-unquote, Egypt to get away from it. And yet the whole point of the process is God's trying to strip away this idol of control. Paul says in Romans 12, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. I can remember when I was a kid, one of my pastors said, the problem with the living sacrifice is that it tends to crawl back down off the altar. Now, that's exactly what we do. We want, we, yes, Lord, take it all. Yes, I'll do, whether it's favorable or unfavorable, whatever you say, God, I'll do it. And then God says it, and we're like, anything but that. 
Please give me something, because we want to take control. I don't want the difficulty. I want the better way. I want, I want it easier. Is this any way to grow this pain, this struggle? And that's where we have to realize something very, very important. We have to come to see that the breaking is a way to healing brokenness. God was saying to the people, stay here. This brokenness you feel from everything being stripped away is a part of the new beginning. It's a part of the way to healing. That the fall of Jerusalem was actually meant to strip away the idol of control and bring them back to the point of surrender, which paradoxically and counterintuitively actually begins the process of healing. The breaking is the way to the healing of brokenness. Hebrews 12, my son or daughter, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son or daughter. During those years when Israel went astray, he had said this over and over through the prophets. Guys, this is harmful for you. You need to let go. You need to stop. You need to surrender. There's a passage in Amos 4 that is particularly striking. I'm just going to read it to you. I want you to listen for the repeated phrases in Amos 4. I gave you, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. And people staggered from town to town for water, but they did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. See, the goal of all those actions of the painful, difficult suffering that they went through was that they might return to the God who loves them, who leads them. And yet in every situation, the idol of control lured them away. There's a beautiful passage in Hosea 2.14 where he talks to Israel and he says, therefore I am now going to allure her, Israel. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. That, that part of this struggle is taking us into a place where we'll finally actually listen to God. Where we'll lay down the idol of control and surrender to his leadership. The goal being what, what he says later in Hosea 6.1, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he'll bind up our wounds. You see, this is a long, drawn-out story, Jeremiah 38 to 44. And what is, what is it saying to us? It's saying, first of all, we need to, receive, to, to realize that we can deceive ourselves so easily. And we can start defining spiritual success in terms of what we want instead of what we actually need. We can run away to Egypt looking for something better when what we need is actually already right here with us. To realize that through everything that happens, God is calling us to lay down this idol of control and that even this, this process of, of breaking, this, this being broken, 
is a part of the journey of healing of the brokenness. See, in the text we see that the faithful listen and remain. There's, there's two snippets. The guy, uh, there's a guy, Ebed Melech, the Cushite. He's Jeremiah's friend. And when Jeremiah's thrown down the cistern, he's the one that goes to tell the king, hey, he's thrown down a cistern. And the king says, go get him. And, and later on in, in chapter 39, if you want to look back, verses 17 and 18, but I will rescue, this is what God says to tell Jeremiah to tell Ebed Melech the Cushite. I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be handed over to those you fear. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life because you trust in me. And we saw what he said to those when he said, don't flee to Egypt in chapter 42. If you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you. And not uproot you, for I am grieved over the disaster I have afflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion. And you know, for you and me in the middle of Lent, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle, some of you are carrying huge struggles right now. I know. I've I've spoken with some of you and, and heard from others, but I know this is not an easy time. And for you and me, in the middle of this struggle and brokenness and pain, there is a longing to run away from it all, to hide, to look for an easier way out. And the question is, can we trust? Can we do? You know, Jesus says to the disciples in in John 6, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You've got the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the only God. the Holy One of God. Can we stay and trust despite this difficulty? Can we, can we stay long enough to let it weaken the power of the idol of control on us? Can we see that the brokenness we're in right now is actually a part of the journey toward healing? I think if we do, we hear this. This is my paraphrase of that 42, 10 to 12. If you stay in this land, this place of struggle, where I've placed you. I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you. Don't be afraid of this situation, the circumstances that you're now afraid of. Don't be afraid of them, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and will deliver you from their hands. I will show you compassion. I will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. That's what we long for is trusting and realizing that even in the difficulty, what, what's being pried from our fingers is the idol of control, the one thing that will actually destroy us. God, very, sometimes roughly, very difficult, in very difficult ways, is prying that away from us because life comes when we, when we receive from Him instead of trying to drive the bus ourselves. Let's pray. God, it's a long and complicated story. And we can take it and just interpret it any way we want. And I pray that, that the Spirit would speak to us what, what you're saying to us in this passage. That you would help us to, to not just believe what we want to believe, to not seek a better way, an easier way, a way that promises more comfort or strength or power, but that we can be where, where you have placed us and trust that even in this, you can rebuild 
that you can replant, that you can nurture us, that you can show compassion and bring freedom and peace. And that ultimately, God, that you can heal the brokenness that we brought on ourselves by bowing to the idol of control in our own lives. Help us to be where you have placed us. Help us to rest in the fact that you love us, that it's not about our ability to get out of this or fix this. It's our ability to surrender that you call us to. And even our feeble attempts, God, that, that, that you welcome those, that your grace is sufficient, that your strength is made perfect in weakness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're in the middle of difficulty and suffering and struggle, and many of you are, that's a very hard song to sing in that, in that place. But you're not alone. And I, I just want to end from, from 2 Corinthians 12. Paul had this thing that we don't know what it, was, what it was. He called it a thorn in his flesh, something that was just miserable, something that he would love to have left behind. And it says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, says Paul, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's my prayer for you this week. In whatever weakness you feel, that you would know that God's grace is sufficient and His power is made perfect at that point of your weakness. Amen.